Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Um, we're going to be talking mining now, and mining has a long history in Australia, stretching back to the gold rush of the 1850s right through to today, where Australia's miners are some of the richest in the world. Um, but as the detonation of the Jukun Gorge by Rio Tinto showed us again last year, mining activity can be disastrous for country. And the consent and involvement of Aboriginal people is vital to that industry, but too often through history has been disregarded. Historian Claire Wright has written an essay for the latest Griffith Review called Masters of the Future or Heirs of the Past, Mining History and the Right to Know, and joins us by phone to talk about um, this essay a little more. And it's great to have you on Triple R, Claire, welcome. It's really great to be here. Thanks for asking me to be, come along. And um, yeah, so was it Jukun Gorge um, and the detonation of that, of those important that site and and the caves that made you want to write this essay that that looks and and tells the story of mining in Australia in a different way? Well, I've been looking at the history of mining from alternative perspectives for a while now. As you suggested, my book, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, looked at the Eureka Stockade, which was, uh, of course, um, happened during the Victorian Gold Rush. That was in, on the twelfth of, sorry, on the third of December, eighteen fifty-four, and that is a, a, a pinnacle of mining history in in Australia. Um, I mean, it's kind of funny. We we all learn about the Gold Rush at school, but in some ways, don't see that as part of mining history, don't necessarily draw the dots between that gold rush history um, that is so prevalent in our historical consciousness and and what we consider today to be the mining industry. Um, of course, that's exactly what it was. Ballarat was a mining community in 1854, uh, just as there are so many mining communities around Australia today. So I, I've been looking at mining for, for a while now and and my current research after the book that I'm now writing, which is going to become the third instalment of, of my democracy trilogy, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka being the first instalment, is actually looking at the bark petitions um, and, and mining the mining site of Nullumboy in northeast Arnhem Land and looking at Indigenous rights and, and uh, the democratic practices in relation to... Um, to that particular incident, which is also a mining one and drawing the dots between Eureka in 1854 and Nullumboy in 1963. Uh, that's when the bark petitions were presented. So I've been thinking about these things for a long time and I guess Jukan came along and it just seemed to me to be a moment that crystallised a lot of the things that I've been thinking about, about voice, about consent, um, about who the people are, about who we call miners, um, and and indeed it, it, it sort of acts as a as a catalyst. Um, it's it's not um, it's not something that is just existing in a present vacuum. Um, it's a blast from the past, um, if I can use that really terrible pun. And and so what are those links uh, which you make in in this essay between the Victorian gold rush of, of sort of the 1850s and what happened when the Gove Peninsula in Arnhem Land was opened up to mining sometime later and particularly I guess what happened to the Wadawurrung and Yolngu people respectively kind of through that process? Yeah, well, so in the gold rush of the 1850s, that, of course, was a second dispossession for the Wadawurrung people and the Jajawurrung. The Wadawurrung people are around the Ballarat region, the Jajawurrung around Bendigo, the two uh, great sites of the Victorian gold rush. But there are, of course, other Indigenous groups all over Victoria, around Castlemaine, um, uh, Omeo, and all the places that there were um, that there were gold rushes too in Victoria. And and, and they became a second form of dispossession after the pastoral expansion that had happened in, in the previous 50 years. And so those relationships that local Indigenous people had formed with pastoralists um, in order to stay on their hunting grounds uh, or their traditional lands in, in some kinds of ways, it's, uh, you know, former fringe dwellers, but, um, but still basically living on country, was threatened w- once again um, by this new extraordinary 
wave of immigration. As I mentioned in the essay, there were about 25,000 people in Victoria in 1851 when gold was supposedly discovered, and I'll come back to that little um, parentheses around the word discovered. Um, but um, And then 10 years later, in 1861, there were 600,000 people. I mean, that's a massive explosion of population. And, um, and, and it really affected uh, Indigenous people's lives in, in new um, and newly threatening ways. But it also, as the, the research of some historians has shown, I'm particularly thinking of Fred Carr, who works out of um, Federation Uni in Ballarat, uh, in his terrific book Black Gold, has shown was that Indigenous people also saw the gold rush and the coming of these immigrants as an opportunity for um, their own form of entrepreneurialism. Um, you know, they knew, and here's here, that, that discovered word, they knew that there was gold in the ground, um, and Indigenous people had engaged in extractive processes, were in fact our first miners, um, and, and this is one of the things that, that my research, I, I want to do with it, is to reconceptualise who we see as miners and how long and how we, we set the, the timeline on mining history in Australia. You mentioned in your introduction that our mining history starts with the gold rush, and of course that is our common perception. But our mining history really starts with the extractive processes that were going on with our First Nations people all over the country. Uh, Aboriginal people were our First Nations and our first miners. And so there were all sorts of opportunities when the gold rush came in, in Victoria for local people who had local knowledge about where the deposits were for these minerals. Um, and uh, as well as other commercial opportunities around being able to provide services for this massive uh, people who are now on their land in terms of providing food, providing warmth in the in the form of possum skin cloaks, um, providing um, guides, um, providing all sorts of forms of local, local knowledge. And these were capitalised on. Uh, so Indigenous people weren't just the victims of the gold rush, but they very much adapted to the new circumstances. As I say in the essay, uh, the Europeans were novel, but the practice of mining was not. Yeah, and I um, and I absolutely should have said, stretching back beyond the gold rush in, in Australia, and I think this is what we learned from Bruce Pascoe's work around farming on, on this continent, and I can't wait to read that Black Gold book, which I haven't yet. But I, I wonder um, if you could speak a little bit more, um, Claire, around the the claims uh, that the Wathorong continued to declare over country around Ballarat at that time because you know like the the sort of hidden history of Eureka that you revealed to us these are claims I was not aware of I, I was aware of the, the Yirrkala Bark petitions but but not um, some of the claims uh, around country in the Ballarat region at that time where you say some Aboriginal people were involved with the new opportunities of mining at the time. That's right. I mean, they were, they were involved not just out of a sense of survival mm. um, and adaptation to the new reality, but because they had very strongly entrenched um, ideas that the land that these new people were coming and digging and, and settling on and using for their own purposes were their land. Um, they, the, the, these um, people uh, had never uh, in any way ceded their title. They did not feel that their sovereignty had been ceded and that they were the rightful owners of the land that had had now proved to be a great source of wealth um, for the, these newcomers. Um, they um, did things like uh, the in Indigenous people of Central Victoria uh, installed toll booths on bridges. Um, they requested bounties on vessels to cross rivers. Uh, they they demanded financial restitution from the for the revenue that was extracted for the land, and they saw this as part of their cultural and their legal entitlement that that uh, stemmed from their prior ownership. Um, as the Watharang elder, um, well, the, the name that was given to him um, in the white record is King Jerry. Uh, he called it indefeasible title from time immemorial. And, and this is what draws the dot to Yakala in 1963. So when bauxite mining started to happen, uh, was, was about to start happening in the 1960s, the first leases were given for bauxite in the northeast Arnhem Land region in 1958 by the Northern Territory Government. When um, it became apparent to the Yongle people 
of that region that, that these people who were starting to walk around and put peg markers in the ground and, and start to treat the, the, the place as if it was their own, um, that they saw these strangers coming. Uh, they entirely understood the land to be theirs. They understood it to have both um, a spiritual meaning and significance to them, but also a commercial and economic meaning to them, as it always had. Uh, the Yorma people had been trading with Macassans, uh, Indonesian seafarers who, who came down once a season on the trade winds um, to farm for, for tree pang. They had been using the, the bounty of their earth uh, as um, in, uh, for international trade purposes for, uh, for over 500 years. So, uh, again, this was kind of nothing new to them to have strangers come onto their land. What was new was that these white strangers who were now appearing appeared to want to take the land and give nothing in exchange. And this is what the, the conflict um, that ended up coming uh, becoming the Bach petition that was, was put to Parliament in July, uh, August 1963, this was what it was about. It was about consent. It was about the right to know what was going on in their land, to, uh, to, be, con to be consulted about it and to have a say and a voice. They weren't protesting against mining per se. They weren't protesting against the idea that the land might have com commercial value. They were protesting against the idea that these uh, European people could come along, excise land that they believed to be theirs for the purpose of mining and do what they wanted with it without any consultation, without any prior knowledge. And this was the great offence to their... Um, to their own idea of land law and to their own sovereignty. We're speaking with historian Claire Wright all about her essay in the brand new edition of Griffith Review 71, Masters of the Future or Heirs of the Past, Mining History and the Right to Know. And you've really, um, I think, eloquently drawn that line between the, the 1850s gold rush in Victoria and what was happening around the Gove Peninsula kind of um, leading up to the Bark Petitions in 1963. And then there's a link again that, that leads us right up to basically the present with Duke and Gorge. You write in the essay how the mining lease for Duke and Gorge was granted in 1964, so right at the time of the Bark Petitions and the parliamentary inquiry into mining around the Gove Peninsula. And I guess um, reflecting on what happened at the Duke and Gorge and, and all the kind of soul-searching, I suppose, and, and outcry that's been um, voiced since, how should we conceptualise that incident um, in a way that can sort of, I guess, prevent those sorts of things from happening in the past, given this history of mining and, and the sidelining I suppose, of Indigenous voices that have happened in these incidents that you discuss in this essay? Well, I'd like to think that, uh, that Jukan Gorge will stand as, uh, in the way that Eureka did, as a kind of catalyzing moment in the history of Australian democracy. You know, Ballarat is, is considered to be the birthplace of Australian democracy. This is where miners rose up uh, against the constituted authorities who they felt had um, infringed on their British rights and liberties by not consulting them, um, by being unable to have a say. At this stage, the miners were disenfranchised. They didn't have a vote, and therefore they didn't have a voice. And, and the conflict in Ballarat was about that ability to participate in the uh, parliamentary and the political system. So it wasn't, as some other historians have claimed, um, a revolution. They didn't want to smash the system. Uh, the miners in Ballarat, who came from all corners of the globe, wanted to have a voice within the system. And I think that uh, what we can see if we, we carry that through, um, that the, the second book in my uh, Democracy Trilogy is about the women's suffrage movement uh, around the turn of the century, Federation, another great nation-building moment where women claimed a voice in the, the laws that they were forced to obey um, and, and demanded to have their rights and, and their liberties respected um, in law. And then this is exactly the same thing that the Akala Bark Petition does. 
I remember Indigenous people were only able to vote in 1962, and the first time they were able to exercise that vote was in the uh, election between Corwell and Menzies. Um, the Menzies was in power in November 1963. So this is leading up to this first time that Aboriginal people in Australia will have the opportunity to vote federally. And so I think what Jukan does for us is provide another kind of flashpoint moment where we can say, okay, this, this, is, this is ground we've been over before. This is not a new story. We've been here. We are being asked now in the Uluru Statement from the Heart by the consensus of Indigenous people to give them a voice in decision-making about what happens in this land, to, be, to, to have the right to prior knowledge, full and informed consent, and this is what Jukan really showed us, is still not in existence. We might pay lip service to it in various ways, but there are exceptions made. And the, and the great exception at the moment is with the mining industry. And, and they have certain kind of dispensations or an exceptionalism that revolves around mining because it is seen to lead growth and lead development and particularly national development in, in this country. And as I believe these flashpoints in the past have shown us is that there is no exceptionalism. If you are living in a democracy, then it is the voice of the people that needs to be respected. And not just some of the people, but all of the people. And I think that Jukan is going to provide us with that moment where enough Australians saw that it wasn't just Aboriginal land that was under threat, that it wasn't just an insult to the local Indigenous people for whom these were sacred sites, but it was an insult to all of us. This is our national estate. These are our national traditions, and this is our future as a nation to say what kind of country we want to be and what sort of rule of law we want to abide by. And I think that Jukan is a moment at which we can, uh, as a nation, coalesce around these values um, if we have the uh, proper sort of leadership that can take us to these places. Well, you've just said it so well, Claire, and the essay is equally as powerful as your words this morning, and I really commend people to read it. It's uh, Masters of the Future or Heirs of the Past. It's an essay in the latest Griffith Review. Get your hands on it. And, um, Claire, really looking forward to your um, book on the Bark Petitions, um, which sounds like it's coming out when? Is, is it? Is it soon? Uh It'll, no, it'll be available next year. Um, had, had a certain pandemic not happened, we'd have our hands on it now. Um, but given that a lot of the research has to happen in Arnhem Land um, and uh, obviously remote Indigenous communities were, um, were completely sequestered over 2020, um, we'll, we'll see it on our, our shelves next year. Um, but people can um, follow my work. Um, I'm, I'm a professor of history at La Trobe University. They can get in touch with me via my email at, at La Trobe um, or on, on social media to follow some of the progress of the book. Wonderful, and we'll be patient, and in the meantime, you uh, name some other books we should read in the meantime. So um, that's wonderful, and it's great to have you on Triple uh, R. Thanks for your time this morning. Well, thanks very much for having me. Uh, historian Claire Wright there. She said Professor of History over at La Trobe, and um, you can catch that essay, as I said, in the Griffith Review. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And these days, far-right extremism accounts for 30 to 40% of ASIO's counter-terrorism workload, and this is according to the spy agency's own reporting. This is up from 10 or 15% of their domestic workload five years earlier than that. And this is just one indication that Australia has a growing problem with far-right extremists. Um, And those reports that a group of 38 gathered in the Grampians over the recent long weekend to reportedly burn a cross and chant white power and Nazi slogans was a very visible indication that we do have an issue. Jeff Sparrow wrote a book called Fascists Among Us and continues to pay attention to the rise of the National Socialist Network and other groups. And it's really great to have you on the grapevine. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. How's the dynamic duo today? Oh, pretty, pretty good. How dynamic. <laughs> Going well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a good way to start. You've you floored us. 
<laughs> totally. We don't take compliments well, Jeff. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you've been saying for a while, Jeff, um, that we've we need to take more seriously what's happening on the far right in Australia, and it is sort of sort of hard for to take it seriously when people dress up in 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 sort of outfits and and chant in the bush. But I mean, it is a pretty serious situation, I understand. And um, do you think that we're starting to pay a bit more attention to it, um, the government and the like? Look, I think you've really put your um, finger on, on on the issue. Um, these clowns who were in the Grampians the weekend before last, in some senses, are a kind of comic opera outfit. You know, it's, these are people who have been around for some time. You know, the, um, a lot of these people were involved in the Lads Society and previously before that in the United Patriots Front. And there's certainly an element of, you know, uh, uh, of dress-up in their activities. At the same time, uh, you know, imagine if you were out having a barbecue, you know, in the Grampians with your family and a bunch of, you know, 40 guys in a paramilitary uniform march past chanting white power. This is a, you know, it's a fairly intimidating spectacle. And, of course, it comes just after the events in the United States have drawn attention to the state um, of the far right there. So I think it's really important to try and keep this in perspective, to neither have a kind of orientation that, you know, we're on the verge of a, you know, a national socialist coming to power in Australia... But but on the other hand, not to dismiss it altogether, to try and get sort of some sense of what this actually represents. And what's your sense of of the way in which I guess that you know the Australian government and security agencies have grappled with or, or kind of dealt with this threat over the past number of years? Because we know, and, and you know, you wrote about this in your book that the Christchurch killer, you know, made connections with um, quite mainstream media figures in in Australia, and and you know, definitely was sort of inspired by other sort of similar attacks abroad as well. Has there been enough attention on the sort of apparent rise of, of these types of groups in recent years? Well, well, this is the key issue, I think. I mean, so in, in the wake of this um, incident, um, the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg um, was quoted widely on Holocaust Day, talking about the rise of anti-Semitism in Australia, and this is a, a what, what a danger this represents, and how we shouldn't be blasé about it. And all of these these sentiments are, are, are very sensible and true. We shouldn't be blasé about it. But, but of course, in that cycle of media that he was doing, one of the places that he went to talk about Holocaust remembrance was um, Rowan Dean's show on Sky News Outsider, and he appeared on the very same episode as Lauren Southern, who mm. is the, the Canadian white nationalist who had previously employed some of these people who were marching in the Grampians as her bodyguards when she toured in Australia. So, you know, you know, one of the people who had been her bodyguards was Thomas Sewell, who's the leader of this National Socialist Movement, who had been in contact with the Christchurch perpetrator who had been around that same kind of malice. So, you know, there's this level of um, unwillingness to grasp the connections between a, a, mainstream, a mainstream toleration for, uh, for uh, you know, white nationalist provocateurs like Lauren Southern and, you know, the ability of out-and-out fascists like this National Socialist Movement to gather a small number of people around them. And so, do you take that as an indication that the the federal government or you know politicians in in the government haven't quite got their head around it yet? Like, what what's needed here? I think that the the, the federal government, in particular, and some elements of the media, are playing a kind of delicate balancing act on these issues that they are aware that there is a certain element of their own base that is attracted to some of these provocateurs, you know, that Lauren Southern was duchessed all over the Australian media when she came to Australia, as was Milo Yiannopoulos. You know, you remember Milo Yiannopoulos addressed mm. the Australian Parliament, that there were large numbers of Australian politicians who voted for Pauline Hanson's 
um, motion that it was okay to be right, to be white, which is a slogan associated with with white nationalists. And I think there are certain, there are some elements um, in federal politics who are very reluctant to, um, to, to to cause a ruckus with their own base, being conscious that you know um, some of these people are attracted to 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 to, to these ideas. But I mean, I think. I think that the issue that we have to really grasp is the nature of the, of, of the threat. In, in some respects, the, the people who are marching in the Grampians aren't necessarily the, the, the real danger because there are, there are no elements, you know, and there's a sort of degree of, you know, of, um, of, of, of play acting. But at the same time, um, we we just had a recent case where a um, a young man in Albury Wodonga has been charged with um, terrorism um, offences, and I want to be very careful what I say about this because it's going before the, the, the courts. But this 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 guy had in fact contacted Saul's group, the National Socialist Movement, and applied to join them, and they'd refused to allow allow him. Whereupon. He seems to have then started to to um, to flirt with the idea of um, of being involved in terrorist action by himself, or at least those are the allegations. And I think the real danger is that somebody from the internet who hasn't previously manifested themselves will step out of the shadows and commit some absolute atrocity, like we saw in. Christchurch, and I think that is a real danger at the moment. And, I mean, you know, obviously these groups have have their own means of, you know, reaching out to people and and trying to effectively recruit members and and so on, and I mean, as some of the sort of very large mainstream social media companies have started to, you know, de-platform people and and ban accounts, they've found other ways of other platforms to use um, to get that sort of message out there. But it kind of touches on, uh, you know, a conversation among more sort of serious media outlets than, than the one you mentioned earlier about how to best cover these issues because you know I, I know there are concerns about unnecessarily amplifying the message of these groups when they're undertaking these highly performative acts as you know obviously happened in the Grampians last week but also this is you know a really serious issue that we need to talk about and, and get our heads around and be very aware of as well what's the best way of kind of doing that do you think? Yes, I, I, look, I think this is a really interesting point that um, that you raise, and there's no sort of simple um, solution to that. But um, while, of course, we should be careful not to amplify these people and not to, you know, to, to fall into their traps of, of, of giving them publicity, at the same time, ignorance never got anyone anywhere. That these people exist, they are a real kind of force, and we've seen the kind of horrific consequences of... Um, that, 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 that can ensue from these um, these tendencies. So I, I think the starting point is that journalists or others who are covering it need to do their work and need to do their research and know what they're talking about in the same way as if you're reporting on any other subject. So you don't just, you know, report on something as serious as like this without having done any preparation beforehand because that's the way that you end up repeating these messages but whereas if you've done some research, you're more able to sort of provide that role of helping to, you know, educate people to the nature of the threat and what they should be looking out for. Because as you say, as some of the platforms like 8chan um, have been closed down and as Twitter and Facebook and the other mainstream social media platforms are increasingly enforcing a zero tolerance um uh, policy, we're seeing um, sites like Gab or Parler that, um, well, they're nowhere near as large as um, as Facebook or Twitter, or Twitter. They have millions of people on them, and on those sites, these people are rampant. It's not very hard to find this kind of, you know, th- these kind of ideas being um, expressed, and so they have. 
haven't actually been silenced. They are still out there recruiting. And so that's why I think it's really important that we actually understand the nature of the threat. Yeah, and um, Jeff Sparrow's with us and we're um, speaking about um, really the, the urging that there's more to be known about and more action taken around far-right groups in Australia. But, um, I mean, you said there and what you really argued in your books, um, your book Fascists Among Us, Jeff, that we, we should not remain ignorant of what's happening. Um, but And you've sort of mentioned a couple of places where you go for information. Is this, you know, having those research skills and I, I guess the, the knowledge of, of where to go um, to better understand what's been spoken about and, and who's involved and the like, is that really um, where a lot of work needs to to happen now, do you think, or really we're, we're, we're sort of on that as well as a, as a community or as, you know, with our, um, our various agencies such as ASIO really are tapped into, into these sorts of undercurrents, I guess? Look, I, I, I think um, that kind of work is important because um, it's very, very easy for um, disaffected young people in particular and particularly disaffected young men who seem to be those most attracted to these groups to, you know, to, 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 to find the, 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 the nasty um, recesses of the internet perhaps initially as a joke or because it's transgressive or because they're just curious and then to start interacting with these people. I mean, one, of, one of the issues that I, I, I've written about quite a bit is that in the past, the far right had to organise publicly or on the streets or by holding, by holding meetings and so on. And when they did that, they were far um, easier to, um, to, to, to combat. Now, however, they are able to proselytise online and in places where they're much more difficult to, to, to counter. And it's not necessarily that people always start with people who overtly call themselves national socialists. You think about the bizarre kind of conspiracy theories that are proliferating around things like um, COVID or vaccinations or whatever, and anyone who starts going down that particular rabbit hole will before long start to come across, you know, the more organised elements of the far right who are recruiting out of that um, of that milieu. And, you know, it's it's kind of astonishing how far those sort of, you know, anti the, the, the COVID conspiracies are circulating now. So there is a real milieu out of which they are recruiting. And I think it's, you know, it's something that we all need to be aware of. Is that a real concern, do you think, as well, given that, you know, over the past year, people have been much more isolated and, and spending much more time online than they might have previously and, and therefore might be more likely to find themselves kind of going down these rabbit holes that, that might lead them to these kind of, you know, white supremacists and, and, and far-right groups who are actively trying to, to recruit members and, and get their message out there? Yes, exactly. And also in the context of a very um, uncertain and disturbing time in which, you know, many of the things that we took for granted about the way that we live and the way that we conduct ourselves have been turned on their head and a lot of people are feeling very anxious about the, the future. So conspiracy theories in the sense that there is, um, you know, some great machination that's, that's that, that shaping how the world unfolds can be strangely reassuring in a sense. It's much more comforting to think that some, you know, some evil conspiracy is running the world than to realise that nobody actually knows what's going on. You see what I mean? So mm. there's, 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 the, 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 these conspiracy theories have a real appeal. And, you know, like when, when you read it, say the QAnon phenomenon, this bizarre conspiracy theory that's centred around... Um, Donald Trump, there's a sense to which it's almost been gamified. So, you know, it becomes this sort of comforting um, hobby for, uh, you know, for, for sometimes like middle-aged or older loners at home, you know, investigating the QAnon clues on the internet and going down these deep, dark rabbit holes where they come into contact with some really, really nasty people. Now, of course, not all of those people um, are, are fascists and not all of those people are committed to violence. The great majority aren't. But you only need a very, very small number to, um, 
you know, to result in something as horrific as we saw in Christchurch. Well, Jeff Sparrow, I don't know what it says about me that I find your voice calming and reassuring and, um, yeah, and I really look forward to you being back on The Grapevine hopefully in about a month or so. Oh, gee, nice. Well, it's been lovely to chat to you both. Thanks so much for having me on. We'll catch you soon. Thanks, Jeff. And I um, highly recommend Jeff's book, uh, Fascists Among Us. And um, we actually interviewed him about it, gee, just over a year ago. And it's um, kind of, yeah, remarkable, I guess, that it is just it's still so relevant right now. Triple. Ah. Russia has been experiencing a wave of protests recently in support of opposition figure Alexei Navalny, who was imprisoned upon returning to the country for the first time since narrowly escaping an attempt on his life by poisoning. These latest events follow years of activism by Navalny, who has persistently criticised the Kremlin and run very public campaigns highlighting alleged corruption perpetrated by Vladimir Putin and others. These domestic tensions come amid a curious time for international politics Politics, particularly between the US and Russia, as US President Joe Biden seeks to distinguish his foreign policy from that of former President Trump. To help us understand these dynamics, we're joined on the line by Alexei Muraviev. He's an Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University over in Perth. And uh, Alexei, great to have you with us and wishing you all the best in um, your new lockdown over there. Thank you. And so we've heard overnight of yet more protests um, happening across Russia with thousands of people arrested, according to reports. How do you view Alexei Navalny's challenge to Putin's leadership and, and I guess the nature of support that he's received most recently? Look, I mean, I, I think we need to put it in the context. First of all, the year 2021 is the election year in Russia and the Russians are not uh, this year, they're not going to um, vote for a new president. It happened just uh, just recently, but they're going to uh, uh, to elect a new parliament, including local parliament. So obviously, this is this is an important year with regards to Russian domestic politics. And, and normally, at a time when there is uh, 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 one of those symbolic years, there is a heightened political activity. Uh, and, 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 and clearly there is an attempt, yeah, yet another attempt by the Russian so-called non-systemic opposition because Alexei Navalny represents not the opposition that formerly sits in the Russian parliament but effectively is, is effectively part of the game played by the Kremlin but rather than something uh, that is um, in, in, in fierce opposition to the current um, to the current ruling regime in, in, in Russia to actually gain some support and, 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 and score some votes and and the problem for Navalny and this is what we have to also understand is uh, despite the fact that he is a popular figure and certainly um, he is he is a very um, he has a strong support um, because of his um, um, uh, pivotal presence in social media. Uh, but the reality is Navalny, when it comes to challenging Putin uh, for, for the top job, doesn't really score more than 5% of the overall electoral support. Mm. And that's not something because the Kremlin uh, doesn't, doesn't really uh, give Navalny an opportunity to speak or, uh, or, or because of some issues. Uh, issues concerning um, um, freedom of speech. It's simply because Navalny doesn't have a positive agenda, doesn't really provide any any answers to, to the Russians. The only thing he does, he just condemns the regime, uh, exposes uh, cases of corruption, accuses the government, but it's a negative agenda and you cannot really run with it. So there is a bit of a challenge for him and he's trying to use all means in order to uh, to, to not just to keep his profile alive, but also to, to generate much-needed support. That's, um, I mean, I was going to ask you exactly that about about a policy platform with Alexei Navalny because I wasn't, uh, other than, as you as you point out, in standing in opposition to Putin, what is it? So that actually um, affects his standing, does it, in, in Russia, that there's not a clear policy platform or a positive policy platform there that he's, um, he and his supporters are running on? 
Well, you're absolutely right. You know, um, the, 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 the current challenge for anyone who wants to challenge Putin and Russia right now is the Russians have kind of settled on, on, on the issue of what I would describe as a counter-revolution. The Russians are, are scared of having yet another revolutionary change. They remember too well what happened at the time when the Soviet Union collapsed, obviously, the oldest generation of the Russians. Uh, they remember uh, uh, what happened um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the, what they described as the world, the wild 1990s. Um, and, 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 and certainly they, they obviously recognize that, you know, Putin has been in power for too long. And and and, uh, and they're frustrated that they cannot see a viable alternative. But when it comes to making choices, and 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 the, and the option that the Russians currently have is uh, get stuck with Putin, uh, but it's predictable, or or go on adventure, but you you don't you don't have any certainty about it. And in this situation, when uh, politicians like Navalny come out with only uh, negative sentiment, basically effectively saying we need change but okay you you exercise change but what comes after the change and they don't offer the solutions obviously it scares it scares um a lot of the Russian conservative electorate. So the only uh, support he he actually is getting is from this generation that grew up under Putin, the generation that is under 20s, uh, that is very uh, social media driven, that hasn't really matured um, to uh, as 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 a political active force. Um, and 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 for them, and this is something also we need to understand with regards to this protest. For them, it's still a form of entertainment. It's a form of gathering, it's a form of protest against the lockdown, it's a form of parking. So we also have to be quite careful in terms of assessing the real um, extent of this protest. You know, how many of those who have taken to the streets are actually in support of Navalny? And how many there are just to have a good time and and just to show off and and you know cause cause a bit of uh, trouble or 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 draw attention to themselves and that's something that also needs to be worked out. Yeah, it's it's really interesting and uh, I mean from some of the things I've read, it's suggested that he has. I mean, as well as um, you know having as as you say, a, kind of a negative agenda and campaigning very strongly against the Kremlin and and corruption and, and that sort of thing. That he's sort of um, moved. To around quite a bit in terms of the, the types of things that he's um, he's put out there via, you know, his very high-profile YouTube videos and that sort of thing where he has flip-flopped on certain issues and that has potentially played into this sense that, you know, people don't necessarily really get sort of who he is and, and, and what he proposes to do aside from, from criticising the Kremlin. Well, yes, uh, and uh, look, I mean, we need to remember, it may sound a bit, uh, a bit kind of, of Putin, but, I mean, the Russians are not going to be shocked by cases of corruption. I mean, corruption is, 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 is so widespread in Russia. I mean, Navalny has been accused of corruption. So for them to, 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 to see particularly computer-generated images of uh, what Navalny described as Putin's palace, they all, they're all going to obviously watch it, and hence that, that particular uh, video, video clip has generated, you know, millions of uh, instant, instant viewings, etc. But then, then they would kind of scratch their heads and say, so what? Yes, he is corrupt, but he, you know, keeps the country together. He made Russia great again, and um, he, he fights for our interests. So this is, again, you know, the Russian mentality is slightly different uh, to the one of the West. They're not going to actually demand resignation. They're not going to do anything about that. And obviously, the, the, the Russian government that then develops a counter-narrative saying, well, Navalny is not in, uh, innocent. Uh, he has been accused and charged with corruption and fraud, etc., so... He is not the one who should be who should be playing an angel here because you know he is as corrupt as 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 any. But again, you know, it also comes to the point when yes, it, it I mean the Russians may be watching what Navalny is producing and he is incredibly popular um, on, on on social media platforms, but doesn't really translate into something that the Russians demand. As a, as a as a policy change, as a, as a course, um, as, a, as a as a change of course. With regards to uh, with regards to domestic drives, and and I think this is where it it, it becomes a bit thin for Navalny. And even in the, in the, in the context of protests, when when I hear reports that ten thousand to to the streets 
uh, of Moscow, 5,000 gathered in the streets of St. Petersburg. In the context of Moscow, population is about 16 million, or the population of St. Petersburg is about 6 to 7 million. Well, that's just a token. And, and, and that may also demonstrate, first of all, how far Navalny has been, um, has been successful in reaching out to the electorate, meaning, you know, very small percentage. Um, and, 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 and given the fact that there was a significant presence of underage there, uh, that may also, uh, um, first of all, uh, uh, create potential problems for Navalny because he is targeting the new generation of the Russians, uh, maybe strategically wise in the longer run, but it wouldn't help him this year in terms of um, 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 uh, participating in parliamentary elections, nor it may actually um, uh, win support of more mature generation Russians because the Russian media is currently running with a, with a very strong propaganda narrative that your kids have been used as human shields, have been manipulated into, into, into politics. So it may create actually a backfiring effect uh, for Navalny in terms of trying to grab as many of the Russian voters as he can. And it's, I mean, it's really fascinating listening to, to how you describe it, Alexei. And I, it's making me wonder in a, an election year in, in Russia, I mean, with, it, I think a lot of um, people listening now, but also, you know, a lot of people in my life were watching US politics and really knew the nuances and the names of people and the parties involved and, and, and the kind of issues at play and the like. And um, I, I guess the, the mainstream reporting here about what's happening in Russia very much centres around Alexei Navalny. Navalny. Um, are there other uh, opposition figures or opposition parties that, uh, you know, that we really should know about as Russia does head into the, the election year that you described at the beginning of this conversation? Well, there are three opposition, main, uh, three main opposition parties that are currently present in the Russian parliament. Because to get into the Russian parliament, you have to score a minimum of 5% of the, of the uh, vote support. Uh, they are liberal, liberal Democrats. Uh, led by a fairly um, uh, extremist figure called Vladimir Zirinovsky. There are Russian communists uh, that uh, currently score about 5 or 6% just like liberal Democrats. And, 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 and there are more of a leftist uh, uh, party called Just, uh, Just Russia. They're all present in the parliament, but I would not describe them as, as, as a serious opposition because while they do their game of criticizing the government and sometimes, you know, raising their voice against Putin whilst issuing a formal apology five minutes later. They're not really, they're not really doing anything. In the majority of cases, they continue to follow the narrative um, uh, 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 presented by, by Putin and, and, and the dominant party, which is United Russia Party, um, um, uh, that supports uh, Putin. The, the so-called non-systemic opposition, uh, which, uh, um, um, uh, which is also um, uh, headed by Navalny and a couple of other figures, has a, has a problem in its own right because it's not united. There are massive quarrels in this opposition. There are massive challenges within the opposition. There, 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 there are too many um, figureheads who contest for leadership. Navalny is probably now being recognized as the most charismatic figure. Uh, but um, a few years ago, another, another opposition leader uh, was, was pretty well known in the West, the former uh, uh, chess champion Gary Kasparov. Uh, who made his name of, of becoming a fierce uh, critic of, of, of the Kremlin. Um, and in the year 2020, 2021, we're no longer hearing about him. And that, and that also demonstrates the fragility uh, of this non-systemic opposition, not, not just caused by the fact that uh, obviously they don't have the means uh, that the Kremlin does, but simply because they're not united. They are divided, and, and they, they, they have another massive problem, that they are, not, they are positioning themselves against the majority. When they start making references to the majority of the Russians as cattle, because uh, these are the, or, or the mob who doesn't really understand anything, who doesn't have a clue, who doesn't have a brain, all they need is a bit of a whipping. Uh, well, I don't think it would go well, uh, go down well with with anyone. So I think this kind of elitist approach that they uh, they also generate from time to time doesn't really help them. And and you know when they when they lose 
something, then they start blaming the Kremlin and the Kremlin media and, and, and go in, into the conspiracy theory. But again, I think one of the key problems that they have, they don't have the positive agenda and they don't have the agenda that would actually be uh, welcomed by the majority of the conservative Russian electorate. Mm. And, Oh, very interesting. Alexei Moraviev is our guest. He's based at, at Curtin University. And just in the, the very brief time we have left, I just want to sort of zoom out for a moment to international politics. Reportedly in um, US President Biden's first um, phone call with, with Putin since he became president following his inauguration, he did raise the plight of Navalny. But there are so many other issues, of course, between the US and Russia of note and that are, that are sure to be pressure points in the years ahead. What do you see as some of the most significant sort of things to watch, I suppose, in geopolitics between the US and Russia, but influencing, of course, the sort of Indo-Pacific and China and Australia as well? Well, we need to remember that both the United States and Russia are the nuclear superpowers. Militarily, Russia is still world number two uh, superpower. So for them, uh, for these two powers to have fundamental disagreements uh, is, 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 is something that affects uh, strategic stability, including geopolitical developments uh, in, in, the, in the Pacific. So, uh, and, 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 and certainly in, in recent years, the dialogue between these two most powerful military nations has almost been absent. I mean, apart from accusations and mistrust, uh, uh, there, there was nothing that much is happening. I think space was probably the only ex- exception where there was still collaboration taking place. So the principal challenge for Biden, not so much for Putin, but for Biden, is to try to balance the hardline approach that he is likely to take with with Russia, including on human rights matters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But on the other hand, recognize that you cannot not talk to the country that can physically destroy you. You cannot uh, not talk to the country that is prominent member of the United Nations Security Council that has a veto power, and and uh, and 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 has too many fingers and too many pies ac- across the world. So. Uh, re, um, uh, re, regaining at least some trust, not not uh, non-complete trust, but some trust, and having the more importantly the political will to launch the dialogue, reinitiate the dialogue on matters where the two countries can collaborate, which is COVID-19 emergency, counterterrorism, um, uh, strategic nuclear disarmament, space cooperation, would be a positive spark. So the challenge right now is to have this dialogue taking place rather than. Uh, uh, continue this uh, this sliding down towards unconditional confrontation. It's been so great to have your insights um, on the show this morning. Alexi, thanks so much for joining us and um, best of luck over there in Perth with, with your lockdown. Hopefully it doesn't last too long. Thanks so much. Thanks. Alexi Muraviev, the Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University, talking mainly about Russian domestic politics, but also about the international political scene as well. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.